We're back with Swing Pass. It's Wednesday, January 19th. We're right in the middle of the off-season. Tryouts are starting. Everything's kind of kicking into gear. We've got a bunch of signing news. And I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Cohen. Daniel, how is it going? It's going good. How are you today, Adam? Good. I mean, it's middle of winter, but it feels like we're kind of on the downward slope of it. We've got, yeah, you know... Big, big New York Empire, Jack Williams signing news. Uh, the kind of almost heir apparent to the MVP award in the league announced <laughs> a three-year deal yesterday with New York. Uh, they've made championship appearances in both seasons that Williams has played for the Empire. He's kind of, I think, when we talk about the best all-around player in the league, it's hard to think of anybody who would exceed Jack Williams on a list. Um, you could make arguments for, I think, a bunch of people at his level, but he is kind of the preeminent star in the AUDL. He's now locked up for the short-term future for the Empire. It really feels like this is going to make New York kind of a championship contender every single season through Williams' yeah. prime, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it feels. And yeah, it's another three-year deal for a first-team All-AUDL member of 2021. We had A.J. Merriman sign a three-year deal a couple weeks ago. And honestly, Pavel, who, is, who made first team, he also signed a three-year deal last season. So I, I like this this general momentum the league has going of locking up these big time players and, you know, franchises realizing their value. And it really does feel like as long as they have Jack, they're going to be near, if not at the top of the East division for the next three years. He basically had 6,500 yards of total offense in 2021. I mean, it's just... <laughs> He's a one-man wrecking crew, and as you even saw in the Atlanta playoff game, uh, he can do it both ways. You know, they asked him to play on defense throughout the entire second half of that yeah. playoff matchup. He takes the John Stubbs matchup, which is probably the hardest one on the field, while also being the quarterback of the offense. And, you know, the Empire almost have a flawless second half in the right of the comeback, and it's just... You know, another kind of feather in the hat of Williams is now illustrious career of these kind of fourth quarter drives. You know, he's yeah, I, I forget the exact set I tweeted a few months ago, but he has something like five game winners, like walk off game winners in the past two seasons. Yeah, uh, something in, like that. <laughs> in addition to a host of other just sort of lockdown performances in the playoffs and the end of games, you know, he's. He's sort of pioneering uh, uh, that that sort of NFL quarterback, fourth quarter closer, like an Aaron Rodgers type where, you know, if they have the disc and a shot to take the lead, it just kind of feels like Jack Williams is going to be that dude. Yeah, or even, I mean, if that's just game winners for that stat, like the game against Raleigh, he had the game tying goal to was that to force overtime or at the end of overtime yeah. and then also the game winner in double overtime like he did basically had two of those in the same game uh yeah i absolutely agree with you i feel like it's not something we've really seen you know like a consistent level of clutch to the point that jack williams has reached and it's it's cool to see every single year like you know you come to expect it when those games are coming down to the wire 
And I was going back and watching a little bit of that Atlanta playoff game. And to watch the Empire offense, you just see how much trust they put into Williams. They basically run, you know, coming out of a pole scenario, they run kind of a horizontal stack with uh, the cutters split upfield and then Williams and often Ben Katz in the backfield. And they just kind of let Katz and Williams feel it out for a couple throws. Once they get the disc up field, it kind of morphs a little bit more into a vertical stack where they can isolate, you know, an Osgar or a yacht or somebody in space. But it's still so much of Williams just kind of feeling out where he needs to go in the Empire offense and then the offense adapting around that. If he wants to release up field and become a receiver, they can kind of shuffle around. Yacht or Osgar can go into the backfield and Williams can operate that way. But what you're seeing more and more from him with the Empire is just kind of playing this all-purpose quarterback who's always available for the easy reset. And while the Empire don't always have, I think, the prettiest of offenses, they rarely get stuck. And that's yeah. kind of the singular feature of Williams, right? He just makes it so your offense never gets stuck. It was interesting to see sort of how his role shifted a little more towards the backfield from 2019 to 2021. I feel like because they had the departures of Harper Garvey and some other throwers, like uh, I feel like especially late in the 2021 season, he really took charge of that center handler role. And I'm curious what you think of like his, his usage back there and sort of where, where he is best optimized within the New York offense. If it is, just as their pure quarterback, or if you think he's better off, maybe more of like a front of the stack, you know, can get downfield at times type of player. Not that he doesn't go downfield now, but it it feels like he's more at home in the backfield. Right. He he picks his spots a lot more. It you know, I yeah. think of that sky he had in the championship game over that pack right. of players he sort of right. knows when to release downfield but it does feel like he's become more of a backfield player and i feel like when you have yacht and osgar working upfield you you don't really need to jam a jack williams up there too to get results and so i think yeah. him being more disdominant and allowing him to again feel out the game and just sort of make it the Jack Williams offensive show, like there's nobody better at that, right? Like I, there's Pavel who can do that sort of thing. Um, there's Draco, you know, Austin Taylor to a certain extent who can kind of put on a one man show like that. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, Jack Williams, uh, Eric Taylor too, Saul Yannick. I mean, some of the Raleigh guys, I think do a really good job of kind of playing that cerebral style of offense where if you just let them, go if you just give them the keys that can kind of put you in an advantageous position almost every single time but it the best one at it is jack williams right now i think yeah i it's hard to disagree and it's funny because we talk about him like he is and deservedly so like he is one of if not the best all-around players in the league and he has all these high touch numbers and a lot of volume yet this is only his first ever first team all ADL selection where I think he's been like just as dominant the past two seasons as well. Do you see 
an MVP for him coming this season or in the next couple of seasons? Like what, what does he have to do more of to get in that conversation? And a lot of it just comes back to stats. Like we talk about, you know, how good he is as an all around player, but his, you know, pure scoring numbers aren't always that high, especially when compared to the hundred score seasons that Ben Yacht always seems to put up. Um, but I don't know. Is that just like a flaw we have in evaluating the MVP each, each year? Like maybe we're putting too much of an emphasis on statistics. Um, I guess what what do you think Jack has to do to more securely vault himself into that that top player award? I mean, without getting too far into the weeds about what makes an MVP, because I think that's a really grisly discussion. Um, <laughs> it's another episode. I, I do think that it is approaching that kind of career benchmark level where, okay, maybe you don't really take a particular season of his, but you say like he's now done a fourth season of, and you look at his numbers, it's basically 45 assists, 30 to 35 goals, 550 completions at like a 96% level and around, I don't know, like, what is it? 450 yards of total offense a game when he's doing that game in game out for a championship level contender for four straight seasons. I I think at some point you just kind of take the body of work and say, yeah, that's the MVP. Right. And you can't just keep going. Well, but yacht has this outside (laughs) statistical number. Obviously yacht is sort of in a shack level right now where there just isn't really a physical, opponent that can stack up with him on a defensive mm-hmm. level you know like you just there there is no easy answer for limiting ben Yacht from basically 300 yards and five scores a game um it, but that I, yeah i think i think at some point when he keeps repeating those numbers they sort of devalue whereas you look at what jack's doing and kind of the larger picture of how he is the central cog in their offensive success. Like then his numbers become a little bit better, but I don't know. It's getting into that like weird makes the front of my brain get a little feverish level (laughs) where you're just splitting numbers and hairs at a certain point and saying this guy deserves it. And this guy doesn't, which I do think there is to a certain level, a part of the MVP discussion. There's a certain just kind of feel, you know, does it pass the smell test? (laughs) Right, right. I I feel that. And I was looking at numbers earlier this offseason, and like you could kind of handpick a collection of statistics that do put Jack near the top. So, like, if you look at instead of just looking at, you know, total scores and blocks, uh, if you look at, you know, guys that I've handpicked these, so they're very specific guys that had four plus scores per game, 96% completion percentage. 40 plus completions per game. So these are all like high usage players. Mm-hmm. And then over 170 throwing yards per game and over 290 receiving yards per game. Only Jack and Pavel reach those numbers. So like there is, I think because he is such an all around player, you kind of have to just get this full picture of stats. And even though the scoring numbers might not jump off the page, when you really like dig into his usage and his consistency and his production, 
Uh, and that's also not to mention, like, we don't have stats right now highlighting this fourth quarter overtime impact that we've seen from him so consistently, which I think absolutely can be weighted into an MVP conversation when you look at, like, you know, trying to come up with a expected wins added number or something equivalent. Obviously, like, the performance in the clutch can be a big factor there. Well, but... how, about, how about just this? In six playoff games with New York, he has 22 assists and 270 completions at around a 98% clip. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It is. It is. So there there does exist a a handpicked collection of stats that would put him near the top. But yeah, it is hard to it's just hard to compare him to a guy like Yacht. Like they're very different. And Yacht's whole thing is just putting up absurd scoring totals and then also getting absurd block numbers because he's huge. Uh, So, yeah, it's. It's interesting. I mean, Jack, what would we say? He was like the MVP runner-up or third this year. Like, he's still obviously up there, and I expect him to be each of the next three years. Um, it's just numbers aren't always in his favor compared to some other guys. But that's okay. You need to name your Jack Williams constellation of stats. <laughs> this this very specific range. Big hug. Yeah. We'll just call it the the Williams Index. Okay. Did a player reach the Williams Index this season? Um, yeah, I'll have to publish it at some point. So moving on to another all AUDL talent, uh, DC announced last Friday the re-signing of Johnny Malks. Malks, of course, was our unanimous pick at the midseason for the MVP award. He he didn't have a. a fading second half he just had a couple of games where he didn't quite be the center stage kind of showman he was at times for the breeze but man he finished with a fantastic 2021 season he had 38 assists he was seventh in the AUDL in throwing yards uh I think other than his teammate AJ Merriman you had to consider Malks to be one of the most improved players in the league especially when you start kind of dissecting it even further on a per point basis, his throwing numbers were just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And- I mean, Malk's like, I, I love that we named him midseason MVP because he really was at the time. And that, remember, that came, that came right after, came right after that Atlanta game where he absolutely wrecked this Atlanta zone that had been dominant in the first half of the season. Then of course, Atlanta sort of flipped the script their their zone and defense in general kind of faltered in the second half. Uh, well, Malks kind of saw a similar, not faltered, but like, yeah, it, it just not as impressive performances in the second half compared to the first half. But that really was one of like the most dominant first halves of the season we've seen. I mean, we saw last year, like he, let's see, he averaged like, I think it was around 400 total yards per game five scores per game. And the number that blew me away was 284 throws with only five throwaways at the halfway point. Like that efficiency in the backfield. And of course the DC offense was known for, you know, this very high volume, a lot of completions, a lot of small ball movement, but still to be that efficient and have that high of a completion percentage while still being aggressive and attacking the end zone and attacking through that Atlanta zone like we saw. 
I, I, I think he was just, he was a joy to watch all season, but particularly in that first half for sure. I, I think you need to pause for a second and glance at the last three games he had though against Raleigh at Tampa, but then Raleigh. Oh, he again. loved he loved playing Raleigh. He, he yeah. put up huge numbers on Raleigh both times. He basically he averaged over five hundred throwing yards and around five assists a game in three appearances against the champions in twenty twenty one. You know, yeah. like yeah. they are a good defense and he was just carving them and one of the things I think is really interesting about Malks in the broader scope of this Breeze offense is that, as we've talked about at times, sometimes the Breeze handler set, it runs kind of on this four diamond pattern at times where it's Rowan and Norbaum and Malks and maybe one other Wodach or somebody kind of dish and give, you, give and going and just playing a lot of weave. Um, yeah, the other Malks, sometimes. Malks is sort of the big sledgehammer that they will use with his flick hook to unleash the sort of top end Joe Richards and formerly Joe Merrill uh, going deep. And I just think he's so important in kind of keeping the breeze vertically potent in their offensive mm-hmm. set without getting yeah. too lost in kind of that giving go we're not really looking downfield i think it's really good for getting touches and sort of maintaining possession of the disc you know almost working like a ground game does in the nfl you can see the breeze sort of doing that to defenses at times but again we've talked about it 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 feels like they sometimes run themselves out a bit and when you watch malks unleash with that flick or even just unlock things a bit with his scuba to the break side or just the way in which he kind of sees the field and loves to sort of switch angle of attack i just think he's one of the like maybe like six most important players to a particular offense in terms of what he specifically brings to it in the entire league yeah and i'll i'll come back to that atlanta game again cuz if they didn't have Malks, like he was the only one that was progressing them downfield with any sort of consistency. They were, I mean, that whole offense is very content just to take a lot of swings, a lot of backwards passes. Like they never have any urgency, but Malks is kind of that guy that, like you said, that vertical element that the DC offense has, a lot of that comes directly from Malks and just his, his throwing arsenal and his willingness to take those throws. And it's a great role for him. I mean, I feel like it's it's a very balanced offense in in that way. I mean, maybe maybe it needs a little bit more of that from one or two of the other handlers. But it, like, if they didn't have any of that last season, I think it just would have been a drastically different, uh, more frustrating looking offense, to say the least. And I just it it feels like he's one of those guys. I mean, he's training with AJ Merriman a lot. He's kind of one of those uh, film nuts that Coach Daryl Stanley brings up where he's just kind of dissecting stuff. This might be the beginning of the curve for Malks. You know, like he might emerge a little bit more as a receiver, I think, particularly in the red zone. You can see him just squirreling around down there and kind of always finding daylight no matter how tight the defense is playing. And it Feels like, you know, we talk about Jack Williams as an MVP candidate, obviously. How much longer and how many more seasons of this kind of production, you know, before we say Johnny Malks? 
Yeah, I think he was mid-season. We, we probably we haven't seen a ton of him on defense yet, and like that's not a that's not totally necessary to name an MVP. But I I still feel like Jack Williams all around kind of has anyone for sure beat in that sense. Um, I, I, but you're right. I mean, the throwing talent alone, like that's enough to. And he's also still so young. By the way, it's his birthday today. I'm, I'm looking at his player stat. I'm page. noticing that too. January nineteenth. Happy birthday, Johnny. Uh, what is what is that? Twenty twenty three. He'd be twenty three. So twenty three. <laughs> twenty three, and he he was named first half of the season MVP last season. So uh, I'm saying sky's the limit. The the like I was kind of saying at the beginning of introing his re-signing, if you look at his per point numbers, that's where it really starts to get sort of interesting. He only played 180 points, which is I think the fewest of anyone on any of the all AUDL teams. Yeah, but it's he, pretty low. But he had 580 completions, 583 <laughs> precisely, at basically a 97% clip. And again, he was seventh in throwing yardage. You know, like, yeah, that that's ridiculous levels of production for basically his first full season of play with the Breeze. For sure. I, I'm curious know, I'm where not... his where did his throwing yards rank? Like, how far ahead was he of the rest of the Breeze? Because I, I like anecdotally just watching him, I would expect that number to be significantly ahead of second place. And yeah, almost, OK, so Rowan was in second yards. place. Yeah, Rowan was in second with about 2,300 yards. Mox led the team with 3,900, and Rowan played the same amount of games. So, yeah, more than 1,600 yards, or sorry, just under 1,600 yards more than any other player on that offense, which makes sense. Like That matches what we've seen. And I just want to take a second. I'm not saying that Johnny Maltz is quite on the same level of Jack Williams. I'm just <laughs> trying to introduce the yeah, idea yeah, of how yeah. much longer until he maybe is included in that room with a couple Jack years. A couple years, he'll be All in right. the room. Okay. <laughs> so moving on he's got, from he's got to hit he's got to hit the Williams index first. Sorry, continue. No, no. <laughs> So moving on from D.C., we've got uh, another all-star signing for Minnesota. Uh, Brian Vanuka is back with the Minnesota Windchill. Uh, Multi-year captain for kind of like a perennial playoff team in the Windchill. Uh, They held a late lead on Chicago in that playoff game. Bivon himself had a great first kind of three quarters to that game. He had a snake in the grass play. He had a couple (laughs) different goals sort of. Doing, doing what he did best in 2021, which is sort of make plays wherever Minnesota used him. Um, but Minnesota, of course, having that lead late in the fourth quarter, surrendering it. But with Bivon back on board alongside the other signings that they've announced so far and Robbie Pouse and Quinn Snyder, it feels like Minnesota's gearing back up for potentially another run at, a, at their first division title. Um, what do you think about the Bivon signing? I love it. And I think Minnesota did such a good job of really getting the most out of him last year. Like he has pretty much always been a majority O-line player as far as his wind chill career goes. But last year was the first year that he actually played more D points than O points. I think he was at around 54% D points, which I, I just loved that split because they were still able to get 
so much offensive production from him and so much production on the counterattack, off-break opportunities, but they're also adding this lockdown defender to their already very strong lineup of matchup defenders, like working alongside Dylan DeClerc and Colin Barry and Charlie McCutcheon. Like, those are so many guys that are just like, you know, very strictly matchup defenders, lock your guy down, don't let them go anywhere. Um, I think he's he's very good at dictating his matchups with his body and getting the most out of that while still, you know, moving him over to offense, you know, on like point lines, you know, when the team really needed uh, to get their offense going, like still having that option, I think was super valuable. Um, and now I just think ahead to this season, if they add any of their Canadians back this year, in addition to Quinn Snyder, I think their offense could be even better, even more potent, which makes me feel like Bivon's got to be playing even more D-line in 2021. But who knows? I, I think Feldman's done a great job of really using him where, you know, any given week, if they're missing a, a key O-line cutter, just moving him back over to O-line for the week or keeping him on defense when they have a full lineup. Um, it's been fun to see, and it's been fun to see, like, his production didn't change too much as far as the scoring output. I mean, he said... 50 plus scores each of the last three seasons and he just hit a career high in blocks this past season too so he's great i'm a big bivon fan do you think divon you think that nickname will catch on i like d-line bivon i i like it a lot i think i might have to start using that i feel like anytime he gets a block i'm just gonna yell divon at the tv one of the one of the kind of uh surprising aspects of you were saying he maintained his production levels offensively while splitting time essentially between offense and defense in 2021. His mm-hmm. completion percentage rose almost four full uh, percentage points in 2021 mm-hmm. over 2019. It completed 95% yeah. of throws. It seemed like he was able a little bit more to be comfortable in that floater role as opposed to always being the offensive initiator. Yeah, I don't know. Did you notice that too? Yeah, I, I feel the same way, right? I feel like because he, I, I mean, that, and that's also just a case of like their offense getting generally better and I think more possession-based overall. Um, but yeah, it felt like he, he never had to do too much. Um, even even when he was on D-line on, in a counterattack situation, having Brett Matsuka back there, like he was sort of the the D-line quarterback, so Bivon could still, you know, play his downfield cutter role. And I think they did a great job overall uh, managing their possessions. And, yeah, I think the increase in completion percentage definitely reflects that. And I just think he's one of those guys where it's getting to the point with Minnesota where they're really close to pushing over the top. They're kind of yeah. in that Chicago spot of they've never won a playoff game. Uh, they're they're still searching for that kind of postseason prestige to sort of make themselves, you know, a true championship t- contender. I think we've sat here for many years and known that Minnesota has a talent level to compete at a at a higher level, but it hasn't really been shown yet. And I think, you know, veterans like Bivon or Devon, I should start saying. Um, I think I think it's really pushing to kind of a breaking point of they're ready. You know, they're ready to take that next step. Yeah, I think they are. <laughs> they were they were right there in 2021. They were mere points away from getting there. And unfortunately, 
we don't talk about that Bivon game too much, but he did have uh, an unfortunate four throwaway game. But a couple of those were like sort of last minute, uh, you know, last ditch efforts by Minnesota, just trying to stop what seemed inevitable at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, like not the way they wanted to end the season, but I think overall the strides they made and how good they looked against Chicago in that last game for three and a half quarters. I agree. I mean, it, it feels like they're getting better every year, and I would not be surprised if they won the Central in 2021. 2022, sorry. This year. Moving to another playoff team, the Atlanta Hustle. They announced another pair of signings in Michael Fairley and Carl Eckwurzel. Two of the more clutch players for the Hustle, uh, Fairley primarily taking up on defense, and Eckwurzel emerging in the back half of 2021 as one of the more productive pure receiving threats downfield he has a ambidextrous throwing style he's a big boy who can run around with the best of them uh he just kind of is one of those players who's the people's champion right now and he's <laughs> playing out of his mind a little bit i tweeted about it earlier today he had 22 goals and 250 receiving yards basically per game in the last seven games for the hustle uh him wow. and austin taylor really developing a connection in the back half of the season. It'll be interesting to see if they can continue that into 2022. Um, And then Michael Fairley is somebody who we talk about intermittently, but I just feel like ever since he's been a part of the hustle D line, they've just added a a degree of uh, both playmaking and just, I think, discipline you you when you have a player like fairly on the field and you talked about this in the article that you wrote so i'll let you take over in a second but fairly's presence as like a mark and like a general sort of handler uh level big who can just disrupt things it, yeah it, it it's hard to quantify and so we don't really have a means to talk about it well but he is such a difference maker for that hustle defense he is i mean he is that that key piece in the front line of the zone, maybe him and Kelvin Williams, but you know, he's a six, four monster. That's just chasing the disc constantly. Like that's terrifying to go up against. And it really just sets the tone for the rest of the zone. And I think, I think it generally makes everyone's lives easier knowing that the offense has this giant mark that they have to get through. Um, so yeah, I think, I think he, he might've been like sort of the missing piece that the Atlanta zone hasn't had, you know, prior to this past season. And I think a lot of the reason why we saw a big jump in that zone production, especially in the first half of the season of 2021, like fairly is he's the tone setter, uh, at that front level. And I think it's the whole, all the cohesion they have, with that front level of the zone as well as, you know, beyond that with Holzmeier in the back, like it's, it's a very well-oiled machine when it's running at its finest. And yeah, I I really think a lot of that starts with Fairley. He reminds me a lot. And of course I'm going to use this as an example because I, I was introduced to this league through the Madison radicals, but of Matt Weber, who was the partner Mm -hmm. of Andrew Meshnick at the front line of the radical zone. And Weber was a formal, former basketball player he was around six foot three, but like fairly, he's a big who is very light on his feet, very agile and just knew yeah. how to read body positioning, angling, how to essentially put his frame in the way of a thrower and their intended target. And I just see so much of that in fairly. 
he kind of knows when to sag off a little bit. He knows when yep. to be aggressive in pursuit of a disc. It It's all very up to his feel. And to have that, like you're saying, at the front line of their defense, it just, it, you said perfectly, he's a tone setter. And you could just see that with the hustle. They just, they step up a notch with him being kind of at the point of attack. They got all these quick bigs. Like, how is that fair? Fairly right. in the front, and then Holzmeyer just pouncing on things from the deep part of the zone? Polk isn't small. <laughs> no, he's not small. <laughs> uh, well, and that's how, they, that's how they've played Raleigh really well, is that they have tools to combat Fairfax and Fisher, who, as you saw in basically every other matchup, give people fits. When you don't when you don't have answers for them, it sets up their ability to then gouge you under with La Violette and Jungs. But with Atlanta, they have these nimble mobile bigs and they can effectively run kind of, you know, uh, handoff coverages if they need to and exchange. Whereas other teams, they have to commit to very specific matchups. Otherwise, they're going to get torched. You could see that yeah. even with New York when when whichever player didn't have Babbitt on them between Fisher and Fairfax, they were kind of having their way. Yeah. Speaking of Babbitt, back to the other Atlanta signing. I love the, the Eckwurzel versus Babbitt matchup we got, um, particularly in the first Atlanta-New York game. I don't know how much of their, how much of that there was in the playoff game, but I know Eckwurzel got the better of him twice in that first matchup. They're both they're they're the linebackers of their respective teams, and I I like when a matchup like that happens. It's a joy to watch. We need like them and Ben Lewis and Kevin <laughs> yeah. Richardson and the tight end linebacker Dierich, breed. Dierich. Yeah. I just want to watch them like play five hundred or something together. <laughs> just kind all of star, all star game. Shoulder. That'd be a good all star. You event. know what? Hey, we I, I I should this is just kind of a little uh footnote. Uh we were talking about Parker Bray and how he had transitioned out of an offensive role and he was utilized on D-line a lot for the hustle at the end of mm-hmm. last season. He'll be back for the team in 2022. You know who boxed out Jeff Babbitt really well at the end of the third quarter for a block on a potential buzzer beater? Parker really? Bray. Was it Parker yeah. Bray? I yeah. gotta rewatch that. No yeah. no one boxes out Babbitt easily. That, that I'm saying it wasn't often. the it wasn't the greatest throw, but you know, we were we were, <laughs> I think, sandbagging yeah. on Bray a little bit last week. We think he has tremendous potential, but obviously there's a little bit of uh, a throwaway issue. But I just wanted to give give him his uh his flowers because he was playing his butt off in the playoff game, boxing out Babbitt, which is no small task. In a one goal game, no. uh, Babbitt is a bully on those buzzer beaters. I, I'm shocked to hear anyone can box him out. I'll have to rewatch. I think it. about, I think about the one that he had in Week One of 2021, where uh, rookie Duncan Fitzgerald, who is a good defender, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately yeah. got stuck on the backside of Babbitt, and it's just, it's almost like a cartoon in watching Fitzgerald, who's about probably 40 pounds lighter than Babbitt. <laughs> try to that's figure great, out how to get around his shoulders that's a great just, welcome to the AUDL moment though well and Babbitt flexed on him after it too so. yeah <laughs> added emphasis real <laughs> baptism by fire so moving on from Atlanta signings let's go 
to uh, a legend, kind of, in Indianapolis, uh, re-signing Cameron Brock. Brock, of course, the league's all-time leading goal scorer, uh, has 203, 13 more goals than number two, uh, Matt Smith. (laughs) It's just an outsized lead on the all-time leaderboards for Brock. Um, He retired after the 2019 season, um, kind of in lieu of 2020 and the pandemic and everything. But he came back midway through 2021, played in four games, and did pretty well. Uh, averaged almost 300 receiving yards and four goals a game. Uh, he is, of course, in his mid-30s now, but he's still got a lightning quick first step. He's been doing this more than anybody. He's just kind of got muscle memory in the end zone at this point. And for an Alley Cats team just kind of needing veteran stability and leadership right now, hard to think of a better re-signing than, you know, the teacher. He needs a nickname. You know, he kind of looks like the professor <laughs> from the And One tour. And he does. And he, he just, he, and he is a, a teacher, teacher, right? He's a school yeah. teacher, and he's always <laughs> just giving lessons in the end zone. I'm saying maybe we take the professor or something from him. But Cam Brock, of course, just uh again like one of one of the nicest people too so indianapolis getting him back for 2022 i think is i think is really good news for them yeah for sure and this is a indie team like you mentioned they they really don't have a ton of established vets anymore they're sort of past their their what seemed like their prime era where they sort of peaked in 2019 where they had all these vets that were playing at such a high level um, obviously they've, they've lost a few to retirement. We thought they'd lost Brock, but I think it's huge that he's back and just being able to sort of usher in this new era of alley cats, um, you know, teach the youngins his goal scoring ways, I think we'll, we'll leave the team in a lot better shape, um, going forward, but I, it doesn't seem like he wants to hang up the cleats anytime soon. And I'm all for it. He's still very productive. I was very pleasantly surprised with how he just immediately slotted in. He had five goals and three assists in his 2021 debut against Madison. Just like that. Yep, against the top five eight, defense. Eight, oh, hum. Yeah, eight-score game, 47 completions. He just he slotted in, and he's like, I'm, I'm Cam Brock. I'm going to keep doing what I've done all time. So I, I'm excited for more of that. I hope he plays more than four games this year. Um, and I, I just, I think he helps the Alley Cats chances both this year and just like going forward in the future. Um, it's, it's good to have him back for that team. As, uh, as Kevin Pettit Scantling put it on Twitter, the league's just kind of better with him in it. Uh, yeah, he's, he's such a a foundational part of everything that AUDL is about. And he just kind of brings that, that work ethic that you want. Um, to a team and so it's really cool seeing him back and he's one of those players too who he wouldn't just be coming back to throw on the cleats and score a couple goals he he's back to do something whether that's win a specific number of games this year score you know put pad his lead more in the all-time leaderboards too or just kind of give the true passing of the torch to this next group of alley cuts because as you started to say uh this team this Alleycast team made it to championship weekend. They, they won the central division in 2019, uh, 2020. Of course, the season was canceled due to COVID. Uh, the Alleycats returned six players in 2021 from that championship weekend team. And wow, if you, I didn't realize if, that. 
if you've seen some posts from their players online, or I think they even mentioned it on the indie announcement for Brock's resigning this year, there was kind of a, a fumbling. And, and you've heard it, we've heard it from other teams in the, the league too. There was sort of this, this roster that was forming in 2020 that didn't come of fruition, obviously. And then something different came in 2021. And the team just wasn't quite ready for that new identity. New York had it happen a little bit too, if you've talked with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially for Indy, I think experiencing kind of the the biggest peak that that franchise had ever had in 2019 and then where they were in 2021 where the only team that they beat was Detroit. Um, it, I think a player like Brock and and sort of the the front office or the brain trust are are wanting to kind of reconnect that you know that tradition that they've had of being you know a founding team of this league and everything and sort of the prestige that the alley cats hold for themselves i think i think brock coming back again just sort of is wanting a, a more firm transfer into the future for you know what appears to be a fairly talented young core for the alley cats yeah, for sure. And we've talked about like the the impact we think it'll have on the youth and should obviously have, but on the vets too, like just taking having, you know, Levi Jacobs, Rick Rose, Travis Carpenter in that offense and not not having any one of them needing to carry a specific load uh, or an increased load and, and really just having another one of that group to sort of distribute and, and another leader among the younger players. Like I just think everyone benefits from Cam Brock's presence. The dude basically stepped off the bus and averaged four scores and 300 yards a game. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, we'll take that guy. Right. Um, I, yeah. Moving on to another uh, kind of up-and-coming team, a uh, pair of announcement signings. Reese Bowman and Vinay Valsaraj are returning to Austin. Uh, Bowman kind of an unheralded uh, defensive playmaker, really good in the air for the soul uh, in 2021, made some really important plays at big moments for them. And then kind of the, the I think, surprise, the, the biggest surprise for me, considering I had no idea who he was going into his rookie season was the <laughs> Siraj. And he, had, of course, had... In the uh, week two upset win of Dallas, he kind of had the dagger layout goal in the fourth where he literally flies like three yards in the air uh, to get the disc. Um, He made a handful of huge plays throughout the season. Really interesting, I think, upfield striker, both as a receiver and as a continuation thrower. Um, He, of course, made the all-rookie second team in 2021. Uh, what's your reading on the Bowman and Valsaraj resignings for Austin? And just sort of, again, they're now, I think, ahead of almost any team in terms of the number of people that they've resigned from 2021. And it's it's all the guys you want to see on this sole roster. Yeah, and it's it's two more young guys, too. Like these, I think they're 20, they're both 25 or 26. Um, uh, Reese is in his third season with the Soul in 2022. Vinay obviously was a rookie last year. Uh, and yeah, just seeing, I think generally like my my biggest takeaway with all these signings is just, you know, seeing them 
like seeing the commitment um, sort of come to fruition and having these guys stick around for multiple seasons after very strong and promising rookie seasons. Like I, I just think they have so many young guys that have a ton of potential and they already showed like a lot in their rookie seasons and just having those guys stick around and continue to build this new Austin culture, I think is huge. And Vinay Valsaraj was just a highlight machine in 2021. That play he had against Dallas, that layout, it really felt like it was the tone setter for their entire season, uh, which I I really just want to take a minute to appreciate because like, if he didn't catch that disc, if it was some other cutter that maybe wasn't as uh, willing or, or didn't have the length to lay out for that disc... I don't know if they would have won that game necessarily like that. That did really feel like the dagger. And if they didn't win that first game against Dallas, I just think the narrative could have been completely different throughout the entire season. So I want to give him a ton of credit for that catch. Uh, I'm sure it made it onto our YouTube list of top layouts or top catches, whatever it was. But yeah, I think just a ton of potential shown both offensively and defensively from both these guys. Uh, They're both listed at six, three, two. So Retaining some height, uh, it's never a bad thing. Yeah, I think Austin is sneaky big. I think that's how they also get away with so much, uh, you know, kind of spread offense. Valsaraj is right behind, I think, Broadbeck and Swiatek in terms of the importance to that sole attack. And he yeah. was so good at just sort of feeling out behind them and fill cutting where needed. Um Obviously, he had a bit of a problem with some of the decision-making or throwaways, but rookie kind of in a high-usage role in in an offense that has a lot of green lights, you got to kind of shrug at that, <laughs> you know, yep. and just think <laughs> that's going to improve in year two or year three. Yeah, it'll grow. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's more a confirmation of the soul are really building something and it's going to be hard to not kind of expect them to make the playoffs this year in a South that's going to have three playoff bids. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think that they should. I mean, I, I feel like all these signings Although, are just... What? Man, I mean, <laughs> we we talked about with the Dallas signings, it's just with Raleigh and Atlanta moving back, that, that that feels like two locks, does it not? And then you have Dallas and Austin once again fighting over a playoff spot. And it's... Yeah, I still, like, I know Dallas isn't... They're not going away completely. I just, every time I see another soul signing, it's like, oh, great, they're getting this guy back. Oh, great, they're getting this guy back. I, I just feel, I feel excitement. I feel momentum for their franchise. I I almost refuse to acknowledge at this point that... Dallas could still sneak ahead of them, but I, who knows? It's still early. Dallas has only announced like what three or four signings. So I, it's going to be a battle still. I just, it's hard not to like the direction Austin is going. That's all. I can't disagree with you, but I, (sighs) I know Dallas Dallas is still there. Dallas made the playoffs. They did. Uh, Moving on to more signing news, uh, Salt Lake signing Joe Merrill, famously of the J&J Roofing Company, uh, receiving connection for the D.C. Breeze last year. Merrill having a fantastic rookie season for the Breeze in 2021, finishing with a 
39 goals, uh, 1,700 receiving yards was just kind of the, I think, rail cutter that you dream of for an offense <laughs> like DC's where you don't have to give him the diss much, but you're just going to expect him running wind sprints essentially as continuation cuts. Uh, the amount of times he's just kind of clap catching a goal, sprinting away from people in a rookie season is really impressive, but he does have the ability to go up and make plays. Uh, I think it's it's another just kind of good energy signing for uh, fr- uh, an expansion franchise like Salt Lake. But one of the questions that I have now with the kind of signings that they've had so far is that with Kerr and Martin and Miller and Merrill now, these are all guys who were playing supplementary roles and excelling at them as rookies last year, but now they're going to be kind of inserted as team leaders and veterans. And I'm really interested to see what happens to their playing and play styles as they kind of adapt into bigger roles, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like with all of them, I feel like we can see them sort of growing into bigger roles eventually. But yeah, maybe it's Maybe there will be some element, particularly early in the season, where they're being sort of thrust into these primary roles, maybe a bit too early in their AUDL careers, because it's interesting. I mean, this is, what, four signings now of, or is it five? Uh, Ben Green, Kerr, Martin, Merrill, is that it? Oh, and Jacob Miller. So five signings, five signings of, of previous or current AUDL players, um, and they're all they're all 2021 rookies like so it's like you get this nice AUDL experience but it's not so much experience that they're necessarily these these vets that can become go-to guys uh for the rest of the team to look up to necessarily I mean obviously I I see that for at least some of these guys and I I do expect them to take on bigger roles but you're right I mean it's still just going to be a very young hungry team um, I don't know. I, I could see some growing pains early in the season, particularly, but I agree with you. It'll be interesting to see Merrill in more of like a, I don't know, like if he's just asked to be, you know, a, more of a primary cutter rather than a fill cutter downfield. Like he only touched the disc. Let's see. He had 69 completions all season last year and really just over 1700 receiving yards. So it was really just him like capping a lot of drives rather than, you know, being integral in the way the offense is moving the disc. Um, Obviously, these are all still very talented players. And like I said, I think they're capable of taking on bigger roles. But who knows? Salt Lake, I think, is going to be a really fun team to watch for this very reason. Just like everyone figuring out their roles, roles early in the season. This mix of young AUDL vets with young AUDL rookies should be fun. I, I like what they're I like what they're doing in Salt Lake. Kind of sidestepping to their rivals simply by being in their cadre of kind of uh, expansion announcements, Colorado. I think the signings, though, they're not many of them haven't played in the AUDL yet. They're sort of the the opposite of Salt Lake, where Salt Lake are sort of these rookies that we got to see once, but we're not sure where they're going to fill in and necessarily a larger role. Colorado's announcements are maybe unfamiliar to the pro scene, but these guys are going to come out and make big plays immediately. I'm, of course, talking about uh, Quinn Finer, Alex Atkins, Nick Snuska, 
Daniel Brunker and Cody Spicer adding to the already mentioned Jay Frude and Matt Jackson signings for the summit. Um, I think right now, if I were to make a power rankings, I would start nudging Colorado to kind of the, the number two in the West. I just, you, you look at the players that they're adding, they're, they're, big guys who can run in space and make plays. That's what does really well at the professional level, especially in the West division that isn't always known for its defense. I just mm-hmm. kind of feel like Colorado is really going to come out hot in 2022. Yeah, I can see it. Right. It does kind of feel like they're, they're sort of the opposite of Salt Lake right now where it feels like they, they just might have a, a bit more polished of a roster and team, maybe more guys that have proven themselves to this point. Um, I still think there could easily be some early season hiccups from Colorado as they try to figure everything out. And obviously just the question of switching to this bigger field play for so many of these college and club players that aren't used to it yet. Um, always going to be a question mark, but I, I agree with you. I think they're generally in a spot where I feel like they should make one of the three playoff spots in the West division at this point. Of course, we've heard nothing from Portland yet. Um, and haven't, I don't think we've heard much from Seattle, San Jose or LA either about their rosters or San Diego. So the West is still just kind of a big question mark, but I, I agree. Colorado is off to a strong start. What? Don't say it. You want to say it. I'm not saying it. I don't, I didn't even to... think about it until you just said that. You want to say it. I can't want to say it. Say it's it, the man. Wild West, baby. Wild West. I wasn't going to say uh, it. You, you just brought that to everyone's ears. I I am trying to put a moratorium on the usage of Wild West. It's gotten out of hand at times. I feel like there's been coverage weeks where every single time like the West Division was referred to, either you, I, or Evan Leppler would call it the Wild West, so... To be fair though, I didn't realize that, that I didn't realize it had had that name for like years and years before I even got involved with AUDL. I thought it was like, uh, oh, like maybe just last year we started doing it, but uh, no, apparently Daniel. it's been around for a while. So it's, uh, I'm not opposed to its retirement. <laughs> Brought it forward through time, <laughs> against its will, again and again. No. Um, We've got a couple more bullet points in the signing, the waiver wire, whatever you want to call it. AUDL offseason. Free agents. Boston Boston Glory making their first signing announcement, the return of Gus Halflin. He was the defensive captain for the Glory. Uh, Glory, of course, not known for their defense in 2021, but if you watch them play, it didn't feel like they were that far away from figuring things out. Again, it felt kind of like an expansion team playing catch-up in a really good Atlantic division. And particularly mm-hmm. with a player like Halflin, he was playing well a lot of times, taking top matchups. He's an excellent uh, receiver off of the turn. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Ben Lewis in that he's a bigger body who can kind of defend a lot of different positions and work well in the counterattack as a receiver. Um, yeah. But... I think it's a good move, especially considering one of the first things you want if you want to improve a defense is get stability. And so returning their captain from last year, of course, will add that for glory. For sure. Yeah, I think he had a good season. And like you said, I think the glory defense maybe didn't look as bad as maybe the the statistics would 
show. I mean, I think in takeaways, they were they averaged like just over 10 takeaways per game, which was probably right around middle of the pack. Um, Heflin had nine blocks in nine games. I, I think I agree. I mean, the the consistency of your defensive leader, you know, having that to sort of build around this season, I think that's a, a great first step in maybe leveling up this defense in 2022. And then finally, some Detroit mechanics news. Uh, of course, last week we talked about Johnny Bansfield uh, joining the team. Not quite sure exactly in what capacity or how many games, but then the mechanics also announcing in the last few days the signings of Joe Cubitt, the team's 2019 All-Star, uh, Brian Walsh and David Innes, as well as Jake Steslecki, who is returning to the team for the first time since 2017. Um, all pretty encouraging news. I know I had heard rumblings about Cubit possibly playing with a Central Division contender in 2022, uh, but he is back, of course, for a third season with the Mechanics. Uh, just kind of the dynamo at the Central of their offense. Uh, Brian Walsh, though... He really emerged as somebody interesting as just a, a big-time thrower for the mechanics. He, he had previously played years ago for Cincinnati in 2016, but then kind of re-emerging in 2021 with the mechanics and being one of the all-around throwing leaders in the AUDL. He finished with over 4,000 throwing yards, 46 assists, 547 completions uh, at a 93% clip. Uh, just kind of adding a vertical dimension to a mechanics offense that desperately needed it um, and being a very good balance, I think, to Cubit in the backfield. Yeah, I agree. He was a surprise. I, like, I'd, I'd never heard of him in 2021, but I feel like he was sort of their main quarterback for a lot of the year where I felt like Cubit was maybe coming into that season, potentially expecting that role. Uh, like he had in 2019 but Brian Walsh I, I feel like he he's just another very like cool calm collected confident thrower in that backfield and that stability that they're sort of developing back there is sort of where it all starts offensively I mean obviously they gotta solve a, a greater team turnover problem a lot of the time but just adding these very competent throwers to lead the attack I think it's super helpful so yeah, look at Detroit making some signing news early on. I love it. Do do they get their first win in 2022? They do. They do. We've we've said it. It's it's going to be one of the Bansfield games and they'll have their full roster. They're going to do it. Will it be home or away? Would Oof. you want it to be home or away? <laughs> That's a great follow-up question. I I think you want it to be home. Give the fans something. Uh, I think the the away win would maybe be uh, arguably a, a cooler, more interesting narrative for the team and maybe more fitting. Uh, just like going in and totally spoiling a home game for a team is, is just a cool way to get your first win since 2017. But... I, I want the fans to be there to experience it, so I, w- I would like for it to be a home game. You don't want to see Bansfield go for a thousand plus total yards at Indianapolis <laughs> in indoors. I mean, it's a very uh, reasonable probability of that happening, but 
as much as I do, I think I would also like to see that at home. But I won't be picky. I'll take a Detroit win wherever I can get one.